Section 133, Introduction. It will be recalled that the first publication of the Book of Commandments was prepared by the prophet in October and November of 1831. The Lord then told Joseph Smith that he wanted to reveal a proclamation to all the world concerning this important scripture, and this proclamation became the introduction or the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants. It appears as section 1, and we've already discussed the contents of this revelation. Two days later, on November the 3rd, 1831, the Lord revealed an appendix to this modern sacred volume. This now appears in the Doctrine and Covenants as section 133. It is actually God's final proclamation to the world shortly before the second coming. Consequently, there are many things that will come to pass before this proclamation can go forth. In fact, section 133 is a prophetic agenda of the events that will occur between now and the second coming. These are the things which must occur in order to fulfill the prophecy set forth by Joseph Smith in the 10th article of faith, which says, quote, We believe in the literal gathering of Israel and in the restoration of the ten tribes, that Zion will be built upon this, the American continent, that Christ will return personally upon the earth, and that the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. Unquote. It is obvious that section 133 and the 10th article of faith relate to marvelous prophetic events which will transpire sometime in the future. However, we have now entered into the period covered by the seventh seal. It therefore behooves us to watch for these events which may begin to occur much sooner than we are prepared to receive them. In this section, we will study each prophetic event which the Savior has mentioned in this revelation. So here is the text of section 133. Hearken, O ye people of my church, saith the Lord your God, and hear the word of the Lord concerning you, the Lord who shall suddenly come to his temple, the Lord who shall come down upon the world with a curse to judgment, Yea, upon all the nations that forget God, and upon all the ungodly among you. It is clear that the Lord is directing this revelation to the members of the church. The Lord speaks of his sudden appearance in his temple. This is significant since he has already appeared several times in his various temples, but verse 2 is referring to his appearance in the New Jerusalem temple. That temple is not yet built, but his appearance there will be of monumental significance because it will launch the preliminary introduction to the mighty second coming when the judgments of God will be poured out upon the unrepentant wicked. For he shall make bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of their God. God's judgments will be phenomenal. He will make bare the arm of the Almighty so that the whole world will realize that this is the close of Satan's reign and the bursting forth of the Savior's power. Wherefore, prepare ye, prepare ye, O my people. Sanctify yourselves. Gather ye together, O ye people of my church, upon the land of Zion, all you that have not been commanded to tarry, Go ye out from Babylon, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. The whole church must prepare to be gathered together in a general conference in Zion. The only exception will be those who have been instructed to tarry. When this revelation was received, it produced a thrilling expectation among the saints in Jackson County that almost overnight the site which Joseph had dedicated would rapidly blossom forth into the New Jerusalem. Little did they realize what would be required of the saints before their character of tempered steel was ready to take on the task awaiting them. This revelation and the disappointing evacuation of ten to 15,000 members of the church in 1833 was a cruel future frame of reference for the time when the great last gathering would occur which would prepare the church for the second coming.
The Jackson County Saints did not know how imperfect they were and how much refining, testing, and perfecting they needed before the real final gathering. In fact, the Lord itemized their imperfections in section 101. By and large, they were still a pretty rough and tumble lot. Call your solemn assemblies and speak often one to another. And let every man call upon the name of the Lord. The Lord wanted the saints to meet in solemn assemblies where they could study the gospel and scrutinize the great events which were occurring and thereby recognize the continuous fulfillment of prophecy as it unfolded. Yea, verily I say unto you again, the time has come when the voice of the Lord is unto you. Go ye out of Babylon, gather ye out from among the nations, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. It will be the ultimate purpose of the Lord to gather his saints into the vast American Zion from every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Anyone familiar with the scriptures dealing with the ten lost tribes will notice that the Lord's people will also be gathered in from, quote, one end of heaven to the other, unquote. We will have more to say about that in a moment. Send forth the elders of my church unto the nations which are afar off, unto the islands of the sea. Send forth unto foreign lands. Call upon all nations, first upon the Gentiles, and then upon the Jews. The missionaries will go first to all the Gentile nations, and then they will preach among the Jews. After Armageddon, the saints in old Jerusalem will meet with the saints in America. In fact, verse 24 says that about this time, the surface of the earth will be changed so that the old Jerusalem will be moved back into the proximity of the new Jerusalem. And behold, and lo, this shall be their cry and the voice of the Lord unto all people. Go ye forth unto the land of Zion, that the borders of my people may be enlarged and that her stakes may be strengthened, and that Zion may go forth unto the regions round about. The multitudes that will gather to America will be spread out in a vast network of stakes and church regions that will cover both North and South America. Yea, let the cry go forth among all people. Awake and arise and go forth to meet the bridegroom. Behold and lo, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Prepare yourselves for the great day of the Lord. It will be in the states and church regions of America that the saints will go forth to meet the Savior as he mingles among them. Watch, therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour. Let them, therefore, who are among the Gentiles flee unto Zion, Throughout the world, as the missionaries make their final visit to the Gentiles, they will warn them to accept the gospel and flee to the safety of Zion in America. And let them who be of Judah flee unto Jerusalem, unto the mountains of the Lord's house. After Armageddon, as we have already mentioned, the two Jerusalems will be much more conveniently located. Isaiah says that the new Jerusalem will be the political headquarters from which the law will go forth to govern the nations of the world. On the other hand, the old Jerusalem will be the spiritual headquarters of the church from which God's revealed word will go forth. That's in Isaiah 2 and 3. Go ye out from among the nations, even from Babylon, from the midst of wickedness, which is spiritual Babylon. But verily thus saith the Lord, Let not your flight be in haste, but let all things be prepared before you. And he that goeth, let him not look back, lest sudden destruction shall come upon him. Hearken and hear, O ye inhabitants of the earth. Listen, ye elders of my church, together, and hear the voice of the Lord. For he calleth upon all men, and he commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The call to gather out of Babylon is to abandon the spiritual cesspools of the Gentile world and unite with the saints in their various beautiful, prosperous stakes, 
However, the Lord wants the people to gather out from Babylon in an orderly fashion. There is not to be so much haste that it will cause confusion or lack of proper preparation. And once they have begun their journey toward Zion, they must not look back like the wife of Lot, or sudden destruction may overtake them. Their task is to repent and improve their lives so that they will be worthy to live among the saints. For behold, the Lord God hath sent forth the angel crying through the midst of heaven, saying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and make his paths straight, for the hour of his coming is nigh. The Lord will want the people to know that the vision of John the Revelator is being fulfilled in that day as the angel of the Lord cries out in the midst of heaven, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Doctrine and Covenants 133 and 17. When the Lamb shall stand upon Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, having his Father's name written on their foreheads. Wherefore prepare ye for the coming of the bridegroom. Go ye, go ye out to meet him. For behold, he shall stand upon the Mount of Olivet, and upon the mighty ocean, even the great deep, and upon the islands of the sea, and upon the land of Zion. The 144,000 from the twelve tribes will have completed their mission. All nations will have been sealed up either to salvation or the coming destruction. These valiant missionaries will then appear with a Savior on the Mount of Olives, over the seven seas, the islands of the sea, and the land of Zion. And he shall utter his voice out of Zion, and he shall speak from Jerusalem, and his voice shall be heard among all people. And just as the Nephites and Lamanites all heard the voice of Jesus during the period of darkness following the great destruction, so the people of the whole earth will hear the voice of the Savior just before the second coming. And it shall be a voice as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder, which shall break down the mountains, and the valleys shall not be found. The Savior's voice will sound like thunder in the deafening roar of rushing waters. While the Savior is speaking, the terrain of the whole earth will go into convulsive changes. Mountains will melt down, and deep valleys will rise up. He shall command the great deep, and it shall be driven back into the north countries, and the islands shall become one land. The seven seas will be driven into the north countries, and the islands as well as the continents will become one land. And the land of Jerusalem and the land of Zion shall be turned back into their own place. And the earth shall be like as it was in the days before it was divided. And here is the verse that says the changes in the terrain of the earth will be such that the old Jerusalem and new Jerusalem will be where they used to be. In fact, all of the tectonic plates in the crust of the earth will be moved back into their original position. When that happens, the earth will be as it was before it was divided in the days of Peleg, as described in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25. And the Lord, even the Savior, shall stand in the midst of his people and shall reign over all flesh. This will be a glorious day when Jesus Christ will preside over the whole earth, both spiritually and temporally. And now we come to a rather amazing statement concerning the ten lost tribes of Israel. The Lord says, and they who are in the north countries shall come in remembrance before the Lord. And their prophets shall hear his voice, and shall no longer stay themselves, and they shall smite the rocks, and the ice shall flow down at their presence. This verse raises a whole series of questions. First of all, where have the ten lost tribes been for the last 2,600 years? And how did they happen to show up in the midst of the ice and rugged rocks of the Arctic Circle? Since the gospel was restored, we have the answers to some of these questions. For example, 
We now know the ten northern tribes broke away from the tribe of Judah in 921 B.C., and the tribe of Aaron, or the Levites, subsequently joined Judah. The remaining ten tribes were conquered by the Assyrians in 721 B.C., but the ten tribes escaped in 606 B.C. when the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians. For two centuries or more, the ten tribes settled near the Black Sea, but they felt threatened when the Roman legions began conquering that territory. As a result, the ten tribes began a long, tedious migration to the far north. The Jewish Apocrypha describes this northward migration by saying, quote, But they took this counsel among themselves that they would leave the multitudes of the heathen and go forth into a further country where never mankind dwelt, that they might there keep their statutes, which they never kept in their own land. That is from Esdras chapter 13, verses 40 to 44. And this is the Apocrypha according to the authorized version from Destiny Publishers, 1946, pages 56 to 57. A careful reading of Esdras indicates that the more righteous Israelites apparently divided from the less righteous and were transferred to a separate planet, as had occurred with the city of Enoch. Esdras does not tell us what happened to the righteous segment, but he does speak of those who were, quote, left behind, unquote, clearly indicating that there was a separation. And this is from Esdras chapter 13, verse 48. It was Brigham Young who learned from Joseph Smith or by direct revelation that the righteous segment of the lost tribes are, quote, on a portion of the earth, a portion separate from the mainland, unquote. This is from Brigham Young, quoted in Matthias F. Cowley's book on Wilfred Ritter, page 448. But as we have seen in verse 26 of this section, it is the Lord's plan in the near future to have the ten lost tribes make their appearance among the rocky mountains and cliffs of ice in the north country. These returning Israelites will be led by God's prophets, and the ice will flow down at their presence as the ten tribes prepare to unite with the saints in Zion. Now the Lord tells us how they will reach Zion. And an highway shall be cast up in the midst of the great deep. Isaiah describes this great highway and says, quote, And an highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. But the redeemed shall walk there, unquote. That's from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 8 and 9. According to Esdras, the returning tribes of Israel will be astonished when they come to Zion and find that the priesthood and saints of God in charge of Zion are the descendants of those whom the righteous Israelites left behind. And that's in Esdras chapter 13, verse 48. This would suggest that those who were left behind were the Anglo-Saxons and the tribes who occupied northern Europe. They not only remained behind, but when the gospel was restored, they provided the early membership of the church. And since that time, it is from them that the prophets and leaders of the church have mostly descended. Now one final comment concerning the Lord's mighty highway over which the lost ten tribes will return. Jeremiah says that when this miraculous highway emerges from the deep, it will be so spectacular that the crossing of the Red Sea in the days of Moses will seem like practically nothing compared to it. And that's according to Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. Their enemies shall become a prey unto them, even though one whole sixth of the Gentile armies of Gog and Magog will survive the battle of Armageddon, they will not be allowed to impede the return of the lost tribes as they pour out of the north on this great highway. And in the barren deserts there shall come forth pools of living water, and the parched ground shall no longer be a thirsty land. And they shall bring forth their rich treasures unto the children of Ephraim, my servants.
The lost tribes will bring great treasures from their former residence to enrich the new Jerusalem and embellish the temple. They will also bring with them vast quantities of sacred records to help them perform their ancestral temple work. And the boundaries of the everlasting hills shall tremble at their presence. The vast hosts of Israelites will be so numerous they will thunder across the American continent and cause the everlasting hills to tremble with the vibrations of their millions of marching feet. And there shall they fall down and be crowned with glory, even in Zion, by the hands of the servants of the Lord, even the children of Ephraim. These joyous lost tribes will pour out over God's great highway and direct their course to the temples of the Lord. There they will receive their temple blessings under the hands of the tribe of Ephraim. We recall that the Ephraimites turn out to be the Anglo-Saxons who were left behind when the more righteous segment of the lost tribes were taken to their new planetary home. And they shall be filled with songs of everlasting joy. The Savior says these multitudes of lost relatives will receive these most sacred blessings in the temple with triumphant songs of everlasting joy. Behold, this is the blessing of the everlasting God upon the tribes of Israel, and the richer blessing upon the head of Ephraim and his fellows. The Lord also says it will be Ephraim that will feel so abundantly blessed to have the overwhelming joy of sharing the temple blessings with the returning tribes. And they also of the tribe of Judah, after their pain, shall be sanctified in holiness before the Lord, to dwell in his presence day and night, forever and ever. But we must not forget about the Jews. The Lord says they will also be given their temple blessings after they are converted at the time of Armageddon. As members of the church, they will dwell in the presence of God both day and night, forever and ever. And now, verily saith the Lord, that these things might be known among you, O inhabitants of the earth, I have sent forth mine angel flying through the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, who hath appeared unto some, and hath committed it unto man, who shall appear unto many that dwell on the earth. The Lord confirms his desire to have the saints know of these great blessings that will be poured out upon the people through the ministering of angels. In fact, before this epoch is through, these angels will appear unto many that dwell upon the earth. And this gospel shall be preached unto every nation and kindred and tongue and people. No one is going to be left out in this last dispensation. The gospel will be preached to every living soul. And the servants of God shall go forth, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters, calling upon the name of the Lord day and night, saying, O oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. And there will be no doubt about the gospel message of God's servants as they proclaim their message in every city, town, and hamlet. They will declare, quote, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. Worship God and call upon his name day and night, unquote. And it shall be answered upon their heads. For the presence of the Lord shall be as the melting fire that burneth, and as the fire which causeth the waters to boil. O Lord, thou shalt come down to make thy name known to thine adversaries, and all nations shall tremble at thy presence, when thou doest terrible things, things they look not for. After every individual has had an opportunity to respond to the message from God, there will come a time when God's judgment will be poured out on the wicked and rebellious. It will be by fire. All nations will tremble at his presence and they will see fantastic things happen, things they never believed possible. Yea, 
when thou comest down, and the mountains flow down at thy presence, thou shalt meet him who rejoiceth and worketh righteousness, who remembereth thee in thy ways. They will see mountains flow down before the Lord, but the righteous will have nothing to fear as they go forth to meet him. For since the beginning of the world have not men heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath any eye seen, O God, besides thee, how great things thou hast prepared for him that waiteth for thee. As for the righteous, they will be amazed that it was impossible for the Lord to completely reveal the magnificent blessings that he had reserved for his saints who were valiant and obedient. And it shall be said, Who is this that cometh down from God in heaven with dyed garments? Yea, from the regions which are not known, clothed in his glorious apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, and he shall say, I am he who spake in righteousness, mighty to save. And the Lord shall be red in his apparel, and his garments like him that treadeth in the wine vat. But the judgment against the wicked involves the destruction of millions who sneered at the gospel plan and refused to repent. Because of this period of severe retribution against the wicked, Jesus says he will come dressed in a red garment so vivid in its color it will appear as though he has just come forth from a fresh wine vat. And so great shall be the glory of his presence that the sun shall hide his face in shame and the moon shall withhold its light and the stars shall be hurled from their places. But so great shall be his glory that the sun will hide its face and the moon will withhold its light and the stars will bolt from the sky. And his voice shall be heard. I have trodden the winepress alone and have brought judgment upon all people and none were with me. This verse is filled with profound meaning. The very nature of the Savior's sacrifice required that he tread the winepress of agonized suffering alone. The Father therefore suffered the agony of completely withdrawing his spirit from the Savior so that he would fulfill the necessity of drinking the cruel dregs of suffering without any external support. No father went through more agony than Elohim did as he completely withdrew his sustaining spirit from the Son. It caused Jesus to cry out, quote, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Unquote. And that's from Mark chapter 15, verse 14. Jesus describes this supreme moment of agony in a modern revelation. He says, quote, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup, and shrink, nevertheless glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparation unto the children of men." Unquote. And that's from section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verses 18 and 19. And I have trampled them in my fury, and I did tread upon them in mine anger, and their blood have I sprinkled upon my garments, and stained all my raiment. For this was the day of vengeance which was in my heart. But once Jesus had fulfilled his role and become the Redeemer, he could, when the proper time came, exercise his power of administering justice. And now the year of my redeemed is come, and they shall mention the loving kindness of their Lord, and all that he has bestowed upon them according to his goodness, and according to his loving kindness, forever and ever. But Jesus is more than a God of justice. He is also a loving administrator, manifesting both sympathy and compassion. In all their afflictions he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them, and in his love and in his pity he redeemed them and bore them and carried them all the days of old. 
The mission of the atonement required Jesus to endure the maximum suffering in the flesh, so that no man could suffer more than he did. Yea, and Enoch also, and they who were with him, the prophets who were before him, and Noah also, and they who were before him. He carried the weight of Enoch's suffering and interceded for him that he might be forgiven. He did the same for Noah and Moses. And Moses also, and they who were before him, and from Moses to Elijah, and from Elijah to John, who were with Christ in his resurrection, and the holy apostles, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, shall be in the presence of the Lamb. He interceded from the earliest times for Elijah, and from Elijah to John, who were with Jesus in the resurrection. His intercession was provided for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the graves of the saints shall be opened, and they shall come forth and stand on the right hand of the Lamb, when he shall stand upon Mount Zion, and upon the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And they shall sing the song of the Lamb, day and night, forever and ever. But his salvation is not only for prophets and apostles. Jesus promised that the most humble saints will be resurrected and stand with the Savior at Mount Zion before the holy city. There will be no end to their rejoicing. And for this cause that men might be made partakers of the glories which were to be revealed. The Lord sent forth the fullness of his gospel, his everlasting covenant, reasoning in plainness and simplicity. Because Jesus knew what great and eternal blessings lay in store for the Father's children, he extended every resource to get the human family to accept the fullness of the gospel and receive its blessings. He therefore had the gospel taught in plainness and simplicity. To prepare the weak for those things which are coming on the earth, and for the Lord's errand in the day when the weak shall confound the wise, and the little one become a strong nation, and two shall put their tens of thousands to flight. The Lord's purpose was to prepare the humble and meek so they could endure the calamities that are coming upon the earth. The errand of the Lord's servants would be to prepare the weak so that they might confound the wise and be so strong in their faith that they could put thousands to flight. And by the weak things of the earth, the Lord shall thrash the nations by the power of his Spirit. The Lord intends to use the weak things of the kingdom to thresh the wicked nations by the power of the Spirit he will put upon them. And for this cause... These commandments were given. They were commanded to be kept from the world in the day that they were given, but now are to go forth unto all flesh. Here is the whole purpose of publishing these revelations in this sacred book. In the beginning these revelations were held back, but now they are to go forth to the entire human family. This is in accordance with the will and purpose of the Almighty. And this, according to the mind and will of the Lord, who ruleth over all flesh, and unto him that repenteth and sanctifieth himself before the Lord, shall be given eternal life. All who respond to this message will receive eternal life. And upon them that hearken not to the voice of the Lord shall be fulfilled that which was written by the prophet Moses, that they should be cut off from among the people. While those who reject this message will be cut off from among the people, this means they will be completely destroyed by plague, fire, or war. And also that which was written by the prophet Malachi, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. The wicked should know that the prophecy of Malachi will be literally fulfilled, and the wicked will be consumed by fire just as he saw it in his vision. And this is Malachi 4 and 1. Wherefore this shall be the answer of the Lord unto them. 
In that day when I came unto mine own, no man among you received me, and you were driven out. The Lord reminds his modern disciples that when Jesus came among the Jews in ancient times, nearly all of them rejected him as their Messiah or Redeemer. As a result, in 70 A.D., Jerusalem was totally desolated and the Jews were scattered all over the earth. Nevertheless, during all that time, the Lord continued to stretch out his arm to redeem the people on condition of repentance, but they would not. When I called again, there was none of you to answer. Yet my arm was not shortened at all that I could not redeem, neither my power to deliver. Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a wilderness, their fish stink and die for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, and make sackcloth their covering. And this shall ye have of my hand, ye shall lie down in sorrow. Mankind tend to completely forget the inherent powers of God. For example, he can send famines by drying up the sea, the lakes, and the rivers. For the wicked the Lord has only one prediction— those who reject the message of God's servants will reap a harvest of total misery and lie down in sorrow. Behold, and lo, there are none to deliver you, for ye obeyed not my voice when I called to you out of the heavens. Ye believed not my servants, and when they were sent unto you, ye received them not. Jesus says that when he is rejected and the gospel ignored, there is no deliverance for the people, none whatever. It is either the gospel or nothing. Wherefore they sealed up the testimony and bound up the law, and ye were delivered over unto darkness. These shall go away into outer darkness, where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. When the servants of God are rejected... They have the priesthood power to seal up the wicked so that the wicked are destroyed from off the face of the earth and their spirits are consigned to outer darkness beyond the space of God's organized kingdom. This means they have sealed themselves up to a doom in outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth until they have paid the uttermost farthing. Behold, the Lord your God hath spoken it. Amen. The Lord has now completed his appendix to the Doctrine and Covenants. It is filled with marvelous revelations and prophecies, and a warning to those who are contemptuous of the marvelous restored gospel. He closes by reminding them that, quote, the Lord your God has spoken it, unquote. Section 134, Introduction. We have now reached section 134 concerning the political philosophy of the LDS Church. Before examining the section itself, we might briefly discuss the rather amazing phenomenon of how Joseph Smith almost became a candidate for President of the United States. The year 1844 was a presidential election year, and by this time Joseph Smith was attracting considerable attention. However, he had no ambition as a political candidate. Nevertheless, the political kingmakers behind the scenes saw a lot of potential in Joseph Smith as a leader. To begin with, he was mayor of the largest city in Illinois. He was the commanding officer of the foremost militia force in Illinois. He had formulated a chart for a future model city with wide streets and open places. He had changed a swampy, unhealthy segment of the Mississippi River, which had been called Commerce, into an attractive town of stores, schools, churches, and houses. He had renamed it Nauvoo. This new settlement had a university, free public schools, a modern police force, and a complete system of municipal government. As for himself, Joseph Smith had a very limited amount of formal education, but it didn't show. He was considered to be very intelligent and had translated whole books from foreign languages into English, and he was a powerful speaker. But to his own people, Joseph Smith was much more than all of this. 
They knew he was the only living person who could set up the original church of Jesus Christ as a Savior would have it established. He had received the priesthood of the ancient apostles and designed two splendid stone temples that were both acceptable to Jesus Christ. He had even received the highly sacred temple endowments and shared them with a few of the church leaders. He had received the fundamental principles for a Zion society and had already set up a large agricultural cooperative that had handled 60,000 bushels of grain a year. He was the leader of the special religious training institution called the School of the Prophets. Some of the most notable people in the country had gone out of their way to visit Nauvoo and interview Joseph Smith. Josiah Quincy, mayor of Boston and former president of Harvard University, and then wrote in his book entitled Figures of the Past the following, quote, it is by no means improbable that some future textbook for the use of generations yet unborn will contain questions something like this. What historic American of the 19th century has exerted the most powerful influence upon the destinies of his countrymen? And it is by no means impossible that the answer to that interrogatory may be thus written. Quote, Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet, Unquote. And this reply, absurd as it doubtless seems to most men now living, may be an obvious commonplace to their descendants. History deals in surprises and paradoxes as startling as this one. A man who has established a religion in this age of free debate, who was and is today accepted by hundreds and thousands as a direct emissary from the Most High, such a human being is not to be disposed of by pelting his memory with unsavory epithets. He finally concludes, quote, fanatics and impostors are living and dying every day, and their memory is buried with them. But the wonderful influence this founder of religion exerted and still exerts throws him in relief before us, not as a rogue to be criminated, but as a phenomenon to be explained, unquote. This is taken from The History of Palmyra and the Beginning of Mormonism by Willard Bean, B-E-A-N-E, pages 81 to 82. The problem with the election of 1844 was the slippery personalities of three men running for president. They were former President Martin Van Buren, Henry Clay, and John C. Calhoun. Not one of them would give any assurance that they would protect American citizens from the kind of abuse the Mormons had suffered from mobs in Missouri. Politically, the Mormons held the balance of power in Illinois, but not wishing to incur the wrath of either major parties, they decided to ask Joseph Smith to let them vote for him as an independent candidate, thus offending no particular party. The prophet knew that he had no chance of winning, but it did give him an opportunity to write a popular political pamphlet entitled, quote, Views on the Powers and Policies of the Government, unquote. Amazingly, this little pamphlet caught on. It gave Joseph a wide audience and created extensive interest. His political pamphlet provided impelling answers to major problems facing the nation. At one point, Joseph jokingly said, quote, when I get hold of the Eastern papers and see how popular I am, I'm afraid that I shall be elected, unquote. <laughs> but by the time of the election, Joseph Smith was dead. We will tell all about it in the next chapter. Meanwhile, here are the highlights of the political philosophy of Joseph Smith. Actually, Joseph Smith and Frederick G. Williams were on a mission in Canada when the Conference of the Church met in Kirtland, Ohio, on August the 17th, 1835, to adopt the Book of Commandments. The conference felt there should be a political statement in the book describing the political philosophy of the church. However, since Joseph Smith was absent, Oliver Cowdery wrote it. Section 134 is therefore an official statement, but not a revelation. 
Joseph Smith returned a short time later, and since the conference had already adopted the political statement, it was allowed to stand as it was. However, the minutes of the meeting emphasized clearly that Section 134 was simply the beliefs of the Latter-day Saints and not a revelation. And now we come to the text of Section 134. The text of this section is a clear statement of principles, so we will have Wendell Noble recite this section without any explanatory comments. We believe that governments were instituted of God for the benefit of man, and that he holds men accountable for their acts in relation to them, both in making laws and administering them for the good and safety of society. We believe that no government can exist in peace except such laws are framed and held inviolate as will secure to each individual the free exercise of conscience, the right and control of property, and the protection of life. We believe that all governments necessarily require civil officers and magistrates to enforce the laws of the same and that such as will administer the law in equity and justice should be sought for and upheld by the voice of the people if a republic or the will of the sovereign. We believe that religion is instituted of God and that men are amenable to him and to him only for the exercise of it unless their religious opinions prompt them to infringe upon the rights and liberties of others but we do not believe that human law has a right to interfere in prescribing rules of worship to bind the consciences of men, nor dictate forms for public or private devotion, that the civil magistrate should restrain crime but never control conscience, should punish guilt but never suppress the freedom of the soul. We believe that all men are bound to sustain and uphold the respective governments in which they reside, while protected in their inherent and inalienable rights by the laws of such governments, and that sedition and rebellion are unbecoming every citizen thus protected and should be punished accordingly, and that all governments have a right to enact such laws as in their own judgments are best calculated to secure the public interests. At the same time, however, holding sacred the freedom of conscience, we believe that every man should be honored in his station, rulers and magistrates as such, being placed for the protection of the innocent and the punishment of the guilty, and that to the laws all men show respect and deference, as without them, peace and harmony would be supplanted by anarchy and terror, human laws being instituted for the express purpose of regulating our interests as individuals and nations between man and man, and divine laws given of heaven, prescribing rules on spiritual concerns for faith and worship, both to be answered by man to his Maker. We believe that rulers, states, and governments have a right and are bound to enact laws for the protection of all citizens in the free exercise of their religious belief. But we do not believe that they have a right in justice to deprive citizens of this privilege or proscribe them in their opinions, so long as a regard and reverence are shown to the laws and such religious opinions do not justify sedition nor conspiracy. We believe that the commission of crime should be punished according to the nature of the offense, that murder, treason, robbery, theft, and the breach of the general peace in all respects should be punished according to their criminality and their tendency to evil among men, by the laws of that government in which the offense is committed. And for the public peace and tranquility, all men should step forward and use their ability in bringing offenders against good laws to punishment.
We do not believe it just to mingle religious influence with civil government, whereby one religious society is fostered and another proscribed in its spiritual privileges and the individual rights of its members as citizens denied. We believe that all religious societies have a right to deal with their members for disorderly conduct, according to the rules and regulations of such societies, provided that such dealings be for fellowship and good standing. But we do not believe that any religious society has authority to try men on the right of property or life, to take from them this world's goods, or to put them in jeopardy of either life or limb, or to inflict any physical punishment upon them. They can only excommunicate them from their society and withdraw from them their fellowship. We believe that men should appeal to the civil law for redress of all wrongs and grievances, where personal abuse is inflicted, or the right of property or character infringed, where such laws exist as will protect the same. But we believe that all men are justified in defending themselves, their friends and property, and the government from the unlawful assaults and encroachments of all persons in times of exigency, where immediate appeal cannot be made to the laws and relief afforded. We believe it just to preach the gospel to the nations of the earth and warn the righteous to save themselves from the corruption of the world. But we do not believe it right to interfere with bondservants, neither preach the gospel to nor baptize them contrary to the will and wish of their masters, nor to meddle with or influence them in the least to cause them to be dissatisfied with their situations in this life, thereby jeopardizing the lives of men. Such interference we believe to be unlawful and unjust and dangerous to the peace of every government allowing human beings to be held in servitude. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to read more on The Prophet Joseph Smith by W. Cleon Skousen, go to skousenlibrary.com. Look for his book titled Brother Joseph.